we have a crisis in the world, tremendous crisis, and also crisis in our consciousness, in us. I see the urgency of change, radical revolution, mutation in the mind. I see it. It is necessary. There is complete quietness of the mind, and that which is silent has vast space. Only then that which is nameless comes into being. This is Urgency of Change, the Krishnamurti podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 61 of Urgency of Change. Each weekly episode in this season of the Krishnamurti podcast is based on a major theme of his talks, such as freedom, self-knowledge, authority, beauty and meditation. Extracts from our archives have been carefully selected to represent Krishnamurti's different approaches to each of these universal and timelessly relevant subjects. This week's theme is emotion and sentimentality. Upcoming themes are education, violence and intellect. This podcast is brought to you by Krishnamurti Foundation Trust. Please see our official YouTube channel for hundreds of video and audio recordings of Krishnamurti's full talks and shorter extracts. We are a non-profit charity and rely on your support to continue to preserve and make Krishnamurti's work available. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider leaving a review. This week's podcast has eight sections. The first extract is from Krishnamurti's fifth talk in Sanan, 1976, titled Emotions are Natural, Healthy, Normal. What are emotions? Emotions are sensations, aren't they? Hmm? You see a lovely car, <laughs> or a beautiful house, or a beautiful woman, or a man, and the sensory perception awakens the senses, doesn't it? Senses, then what takes place? Contact, right? Contact, then desire. Now, thought then comes in, right? Can you end? Please listen to this. Can you end there and not let thought come in and take over? I see a beautiful house, well proportioned, a lovely lawn. Nice garden. All the senses are responding because there is great beauty, well kept, orderly, tidy. All the emotions respond, all the sensations respond. Why can't you stop there? You understand? Can it stop there and not let thought come in and say, I must, all the rest of it? Then you will see emotions or sensations 
unnatural, healthy, normal. But when thought takes over, then all the mischief begins. So to find out for oneself whether it is possible to look at something with all the senses and end there, not proceed further. Try do it. That requires, as we said, an extraordinary sense of awareness in which there is no control. You understand? No control, therefore no conflict, just to be totally observe that which is, which is. And all the senses respond and end there. There's great beauty in that. The second extract is from the third discussion in Sanan, 1976, titled Emotion and Touched by Thought. What is emotion? What is the relationship of emotion to thought? Is emotion independent of thought? Or is thought part of emotion? Emotion, what does that mean? The word itself. Huh? To move out. To move out. It comes from the word motion, motive, and emotive, out. Now, just a minute. I'm asking, is emotion, feeling, sentiment, sensation, has it, have they any relationship to thought. Sentiment, emotionalism, romanticism, have they, what is their relationship to thought? And, please just a minute, and emotion, sentiment, romanticism, what place <coughs> What relationship have they to love? You understand my two questions? Which is the relationship to thought and the relationship to love. Is love sentiment? Is love romanticism? Is love <coughs> a sensation? Right? So what is it? Emotion. To move out. I feel very strongly about something. Hmm? What does that imply? You feel something very strongly about uh, what? Hinduism, doesn't matter what. Or 
communism or whatever it is, or dictatorship, let's call it not communism, dictatorship. Communism becoming now bourgeois. Have you emotions? Huh? Now, what is what their relation? What is its relationship to thought? If there was no thought, would you have emotions, or you would have sensation? So I'm asked, we are asking, what is the relationship between thought and emotion? Wait, I see something very beautiful. Perception, seeing, contact, sensation, desire, then thought. And thought builds the image. Which is established, right? So there is perception, seeing, then contact, sensation. If there, if thought doesn't interfere, there it stops there. Then what? There is only sensation. I wonder if you are meeting my point. Please, don't accept this. I may be totally wrong. (laughs) So examine it, investigate it, question it. That is, I see something which is most pleasurable. The seeing awakens the senses, Right? All the senses are awakened, and can it stop there and not let desire, thought, image? You follow what I'm saying? Then is emotion merely sensation, untouched by thought? Therefore, it's no longer a, a movement of desire. You have you understood this fairly simple? I see a beautiful what? Tell me something. Huh? Woman? Ah, I thought so. Now you all love that, don't you? There is a perception of a beautiful woman. Religions have condemned desire, you know, because by perceiving that woman, seeing that woman, all the sensations arise, then thought comes in, the image is formed, and the battle begins. Right? So, 
all throughout the world, the religious monks have said, cut out desire, suppress it, control it, don't look at a woman. Right? I don't know if you have walked behind any priests or any group of monks. If you have, you would notice this. They look and promptly bring back into look up. Because <laughs> they are dared. The whole tradition says suppress it, deny it. But what we are saying is something entirely different. Seeing that beautiful woman or man, sensations awaken, nat- which is natural. The, and to stop there, not let thought come in. Then the desire begins, then the image-making begins. You follow? You understand? You try it, do it sometime, you will see the extraordinary discipline it demands. You follow? Discipline in the sense, not imposing a pattern, but the act of learning, which is Discipline. You, you understand? The seeing of a beauty, the sensations arising and withering away. They do not wither away when thought comes in. Then desire begins and all the problems. The third extract is from the fourth talk in Sanan, 1970, titled Thought Divides Intellect and Emotion. One, one has to find out if thought, by its very nature and structure, does not divide life into many, many, many problems. And if we try to find an answer through thought, it is still an isolated answer and therefore breeding further confusion, further misery. So first of all, one has to find out for oneself, freely, without any bias, without any conclusion, if thought operates this way, because you see, most of us try to find an answer intellectually, or emotionally, or try to say intuitively. One, when one uses the word intuition, one must be terribly careful of that word, because in that word lies great deceptions.
because one can have intuition dictated by one's own hopes, fears, bitterness, longing, I wish. Therefore, one has to be beware of that word and never use it. So we try to find an answer intellectually or emotionally, as though the intellect was something separate from the emotion and the emotion something separate from the physical response and so on. And as our whole education and culture is based on this intellectual approach to life, all our philosophies are based on the intellectual concepts, which is rubbish. All our social structure is based on this division. And our morality is too. So, if thought divides, and how does it divide? You are following all this? Please do it as we are talking, not just play with me. Actually, observe it in yourself. It's much more fun. Then you will see what extraordinary thing you will discover for yourself. Then you will be a light to yourself, you will be, you will be a, an integrated human being, not looking to somebody else to tell you what to do, what to think and how to think. So, does thought divide? And what is thought? Thought can be extraordinarily reasonable, reason consecutively, and it must logically, objectively, sanely, because it must function. Perfectly, like a computer ticking over without any hindrance, without any conflict. Reason is necessary. Sanity is part of that reasoning capacity. And what is this thinking? What is thought? Can thought be ever new, fresh? Because every problem is new, fresh. Every human problem, not the mechanical, scientific, every human problem is always new. 
and the life being new, thought tries to understand it, tries to alter it, tries to translate it, tries to do something about it. So one must find out for oneself what is thought. And why does thought divide? If we really deeply felt, loved each other, not verbally but really, and that can only take place when there is no conditioning, when there is no centre as the me and the you, then all these divisions come to an end. But thought apparently, which is the activity of the intellect, the brain, cannot possibly Love. It can reason. Logically, objectively, efficiently. To go to the moon, thought must have operated in the most extraordinary way. Whether going to the moon is worthwhile or not, that's a different point. Whether it's insanity, or logical conclusion of technology. So thought has to be understood. And we asked whether thought can see anything new, or is there new thought, or is thought always old? And when it faces a problem of life which is always new, and it cannot see the newness of it because thought observes it first, and therefore tries to translate the thing which it has observed in terms of its own conditioning. The fourth extract is from the third discussion in Sanin, 1971, titled Watching Without Thought or Emotion. This requires watching, hmm? not concentration, but watching. To In watching you are learning. I am doing that now. I say when I am watching, if there is in that watching any operation of thought that must inevitably result in tension, in contradiction, in resistance, because it is the determination of thought to achieve harmony. And therefore it says, I must. 
So I've learned. I'm asking myself, then what is watching? If it isn't thought, then what is this quality of watching in which there is no thought? Go on, sir. Is it the heart watching? Emotion, the desire, the feeling, how beautiful it must be. You follow, if I live a harmonious life, what lovely thing it will be. Feel, ex- getting excited by the image of harmony, <laughs> which is also a resistance. So am I watching with any kind of resistance? You follow? And is that watching related to the mind? to the heart or to the body? Or is it something outside of it? I'm not saying it is, don't jump to it. I'm asking, inquiring. When there is no resistance, no operation of will, right? No acceptance or denial, just watching. Is that watching the exercise of thought? We said no, right? Are you quite sure? No, Lord. If it is the exercise of thought, then thought is watching, right? And thought says, I'm watching because I want to get somewhere. I must get rid of my imbalance. I must not be neurotic. Thought is an operation. Because thought has been instructed by listening to this talk that you must live a harmonious life. And, and thought according to that instruction is trying to live. Because it wants to live a harmonious life. It doesn't matter what it means, but it wants to. So thought is not watching. Right? Emotion isn't watching. Obviously. If I say, I love to, you follow? Then it's lost. So what is then watch? What is the quality of watching? Do live with it for two minutes. Don't answer me, please. Just look at it. It's not thought, obviously. Right? You're quite sure. Moment it is thought, thought is memory, the old thought then says, I must, I must not. Then in that there is contradiction, and therefore that's not watching. We've been through that. Therefore, watching is not the product of thought. Listen to it carefully. You have it if you go step by step. It is not emotional, aggressive assertion that I must watch. It's not getting enthusiastic about watching. So what is watching? Now listen to it carefully. I'll repeat this. You will see it. 
It is not thought, because thought has said, I'll, I'll watch. In watching it has discovered, it, it is operating from the past, right? That it must achieve harmony, because it has heard some person say, you must live a harmonious life. Therefore it says, I must, it must be a marvellous state. So thought wants to live a life of harmony, and thought cannot live a life of harmony, because thought is the response of memory which is the past, right? Harmony means living now, right? So it is not thought. I have learned that. The mind has learned it is not thought. Therefore, what is it? It is intelligence, isn't it? Right? Now, it is intelligence that's watching. So, in looking at thought, observing, not saying, I must not use thought, I must use thought, in observing thought and all the activities of thought, out of that observation comes intelligence. This intelligence has, is, the, is the result of observation of the, opera, of the workings of thought. So, now, that intelligence is watching, right? Is watching the mind, watching the body, watching the heart. That intelligence says, don't eat that food. Listen to this carefully, because yesterday you had pain, give it up. And because intelligence is operation, you, you give it up instantly. The fifth extract is from the second talk in Sanan, 1984, titled Health Without Emotional Strain. What is health? Can there be a healthy organism, biological organism, when there is constant conflict? between each other, one opinion opposing the other, one expressing his desires fully against others' desires, this constant struggle, strain, conflict in which human beings live, does that contribute to health? Don't say no, but then that means those are the factors of ill health. Psychosomatic 
diseases. You understand all that? So can there be intellectual health and emotions which are healthy, not romantic sentimentality and all that, that's un- that conduces to ill health. I don't know if you are following all this. So we must inquire very deeply what is really to be healthy. This inquiry is not just when you are reaching death, on the deathbed, but one must inquire right from when you are very young or middle-aged or now, as the speaker is. What is health? And health implies energy, tremendous energy. And we dissipate that energy through conflict, through strain, through all kinds of tobacco drinking, you know, all the business of it. And without becoming food fad, you know, food fad, you know what that means? Crazy about food. Only concerned with what one eats and nothing else. Without becoming food fads, to find out if the brain can have, can live without a single conflict. That means without any kind of emotional strain or intellectual strain. You understand all this? Are you doing it as we are talking, or are you just listening, agreeing, and perhaps at the end of the day you will try to think about it? You understand my question? Are, you, are we doing this together, seeing the, how ill health is brought about, how trouble, all the rest of it? Suppose one is highly intellectual, very few people are, but suppose one is highly intellectual, only using that part of the brain which is called the intellect, which is only concerned with discovering new ideas, new expressions, new way of putting it, new concepts, and disregarding the whole of one's existing biological and other ways of living, completely caught in that, right? 
then that affects the health, naturally. And if one is highly emotional, romantic, sentimental, as most people are, that also brings various forms of conflicts, which affects ill health. Health means energy, right? Not through drugs, not through alcohol, but oh, need I explain all this silly stuff? But when there is no conflict whatsoever. then there is tremendous health. And we said there is freedom, we talked about, health and energy. There is intellectual energy, right? The intellectual energy is when they have put a robot on the moon, it requires tremendous intellectual energy yes? to invent all the horrible things for, of war requires great intellectual capacity and energy. Right? There is emotional energy by itself perhaps slightly modified by the intellect, but when we are sentimental, emotional, a kind of ugly, vulgar sentimentality, that too deprives energy. Right? Are we together in this? I don't know if you are, we are not. I hope I'm not talking to myself. So, what is energy which is not dissipated at all, dissipated, wasted? Because this is important to understand the quality of energy which is highly intelligent, highly capable of reasoning, highly capable of analyzing, looking, observing, self-critically aware, and therefore constantly removing any impediment in the movement. That requires great deal of energy. The sixth extract is from the second question and answer meeting in Madras, 1981, titled Looking at Emotion Anew. Can I know myself? No. 
That is, I have learnt, I have seen, I have been aware that I am angry. Right? That's part of my my being. That's part of me. I am aware that I am angry. Why do I use the word anger? Think it, let's work it out, sir. Why do I use the word anger? Because I have been told, I have been educated, I have accepted that word, and I remember the previous angers which have, you follow, which have been named. So, when there is a new reaction of anger, of that emotion, I name it. So, what have I done? You are following all this? Oh Lord! Are you interested in all this? I am angry. Let's go back step by step. The anger is not different from me. I am angry. I like to think it is different from me. Because I can control it, I can rationalize it, but it's part of me. That's a fact. And I have named it as anger, because that's part of my tradition, part of my inheritance, all that. The word, the word has become important, not the feeling. You're, you see? So, I've ha- there's been anger at other times in the past. So, I recognize this feeling which has risen now as anger by the remembrance of the past. So, am I capable of looking at that new emotion without the word, without recognizing it as the past? You understand? I wonder if you see this. It requires a great deal of observation. That is, we are always living in the past. Right? That's so obvious. And the past is a series of memories which are words, symbols. And with that, a new reaction takes place, and I immediately name it, which means I brought it back into the old tradition. Whereas if I could look at that reaction, the new reaction, without the word, you understand? And without saying, I know it's anger, so that you meet every reaction afresh. I wonder if you see this. That means your brain is extraordinarily alive, sensitive, not just caught in the old repetition. Right? Will you do that? That is, to be aware of this whole 
movement of rea- of some reaction, naming it. The very naming of it is to strengthen the power. And so you are strengthening anger by repetition of the word. Clear? Now, the ancient Greeks and the ancient Hindus have talked about self-knowledge, knowing oneself. That is, I want to know myself, because if I don't know myself, I'm just a, a leaf in the wind. So I have to learn about myself, not according to some psychologist, some philosopher, or from some book, whether you, whether you call it sacred or not, it's just a book. So can I dispense with all that? The authority of what other people have said about me, the tradition which you follow, put aside completely all that, because what they tell me I am not. I wonder if you see all this. I have to discover myself. Myself is a living thing, so I have to learn. I have seen I'm angry, or I've had one experience, whatever it is, an experience. It has been recorded in the brain, which has become the the memory. With that memory I I examine myself. You're following it? The past is examining my myself, but I am the past. I wonder if you see all. So is there of looking at myself as though for the first time? Not with jaded memories. Not with previous knowledge which I have learnt about myself. That is to learn about myself anew. Because I am a living thing, not a dead thing. You may be dead, <laughs> because we are all so caught up in memories, which is dead. Tradition is dead. So it becomes extraordinarily interesting, vital, energizing. If you can look at that tree as though for the first time, at your wife for the first time, and at your reactions, your sensations, not name them which is to catch it in the net of the old, 
so that you, every time it is new. You understand this? Do it, sirs. Don't agree with the speaker. You will see what extraordinary vitality one has. Not to do mischief, that you have anyhow, but the energy that has an extraordinary quality, a freshness, of something totally new. The seventh extract is from the third talk in New York, 1974, titled Sentimental people are violent. Haven't you noticed that the sentimental people are very violent? Not the people who have affection, who care, but people who are swayed by opinions, which is really sentimentality, by belief. Now, has sentimentality, that is, sentiment, which is emotionalism, has it anything to do with love? And romanticism. The people who rush off to India or to Japan to meditate, they're romantics, aren't they? They think India can give them something, because there are great many so-called holy men there. You know, it's one of the easiest things in India to put on a certain robe and go around begging. And that is the tradition established long ago by Brahmins, who said, A man who gives up the world, his responsibility is to teach people how to live a righteous life, a life of goodness. And they established that tradition many, many centuries ago. And now you put on a robe, you can have any kind of mischief in your mind, Hmm? And you become a holy man, doing some kind of tricks. Or you go there to learn some kind of phony meditation. And all that is romanticism. Anything far away becomes much more pleasant. The next field is greener than yours. Now, sentimentality and romanticism do breed violence. For sentimentality is based on pleasure. Romanticism is also a form of pleasure. And when your pleasures are stopped, 
Don't you become violent? Hmm? Don't you become violent when your ambitions are thwarted? Ambition is a form of sentimentality, not a rational thinking. So, love has nothing whatever to do with sentiment, opinion, judgment, justification or romanticism, which means love has nothing whatever to do with violence. The final extract this week is from the fifth discussion in Sanan, 1975, titled Compassion Has No Sentimentality. What is love and compassion? Is the love that we have spacious? (laughs) That's good. Or is it terribly limited? Is compassion without border, therefore infinite space? So we are going to examine that. The love that we have in the world of reality that love is pleasure, right? Would you acknowledge that? Or you are too holy for that? <laughs> love is called sentimentality, romantic, pleasurable, hmm? and the pursuit of that pleasure is called love. Right? I love you because you give me sexual satisfaction or you give me comfort, you support me, you fulfil my loneliness, hmm? you, I depend on you both emotionally, psychologically and physically, so I am attached to you. And when there is any trouble between you and me, there is antagonism, there is jealousy, being wounded, there is hate, all that we call love. And say, I am very sensitive. <laughs> so, in that love, as we call it, which is both divine and not divine, the divine love is the invention of thought. I don't know if you. Uh, come on, sir. And we are saying, in that love, there is no space. Right? Because there is no space, there is violence in it. Hmm? 
So, then what is compassion? And is love pleasure? Is love the fulfilment of desire? You following all this? I love you. And in that there is pleasure, and if in that love there is any disturbance, hmm, there is jealousy, antagonism, and all the rest of it. And in that love there is no space because I am holding. I wonder if you see that I am clinging, I am. Right? I don't have to go into all that silly stuff. Hmm? Right? So, the so-called love is n- has no space, and therefore that love is really irresponsible. Hmm? And responsibility comes into being only when there is compassion. Compassion not for you, compassion, like the sun is not shining for you. So, where there is vast space there is compassion, and that vast space cannot come into being if there is a centre as the Me, right? So, without compassion there is no meditation. You understand, sir? Because without compassion, which means passion for everything, care for everything, respect for everything. Without compassion, one, never, one can ne- without that, what is sacred can never be found. You understand? You know, we have created, thought has created something sacred. Hmm? The temples, the churches, the symbols, and we worship those symbols and call those sacred. But it is the movement of thought in time and measure. So that is not sacred. Once in India, I was asked, the speaker was asked by the followers of Mr. Ganli, and he said, all peoples can enter every type of strata of human society, can enter into that temple, for God is there for everybody. And they were asked me, what do you say to that question? I said, anybody can enter, it doesn't matter who goes in, because God isn't there. 
You understand? God is an idea put together by thought, but one has to find that which is eternally, incorruptibly sacred, and that can only come when there is tr- when there is a compassion. Which means when you have understood the whole significance of suffering. Suffering not only of yourself, but the suffering of the world, which is the suffering of the world is is truth. It is there. It is not a sentimental, romantic fluttering of thought. It is actually there, as in us. And to to live with that suffering, go to to the very end without escaping from it. When you don't escape, you have tremendous energy to meet that suffering. Then only you go beyond it. Out of that comes compassion. So meditation then is none of the things that have been traditionally brought from India to this country or abroad, those are all the activities of thought. Meditation then is the total comprehension of the movement of thought, giving it the right place, correct place. Thought has its correct place. And that correct place can only be understood or seen or have an insight into when you understand totally the movement of thought, all its activity, all its cunning, its deceptions, its illusions. Then, when you understand pleasure and the whole significance of fear. Out of that there is this thing called suffering, which man has never been able to solve. Christianity has made a parody of it. We have never been able to solve, and therefore we have never been compassionate. And compassion comes only when you have understood the whole meaning of suffering and no longer suffer, and therefore out of that comes compassion. It's only the compassionate mind that can meditate and find that which is eternally sacred. 